Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Outpost. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Bureau. It is Thursday, January 17th, and here's what's on the docket this week. The longest ever government shutdown is still dragging on with no end in sight. What does it all mean for biotech? Our colleague Ike Swetlitz, one of STAT's Washington correspondents, joins us to answer that question. You hear a lot these days about drug developers racing to the market, but the reality is drug development is more often than not a long and painful slog. We'll talk about Immunomedics, a biotech company that after 37 years of trying is finally nearing its first drug approval for breast cancer. The first FDA-approved video game could be coming later this year from a company called Achille Interactive Labs. We wanted to know, what goes into the music and all the other sounds animating a therapeutic video game? Joining us to map it all out is Achilles' audio director, David Collins. And last but not least, we'll bring you yet another lightning round. That'll mean quick takes on the debate over the future of the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, new frontiers for the digital pill, and a new film about biotech that looks very, very bad. But first, a word from our sponsor. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. At Cineos Health, we're changing the game. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Cineos Health has one goal in mind, shortening the distance from lab to life. Visit CineosHealth.com forward slash podcast. That's S-Y-N-E-O-S health.com forward slash podcast. So as we record this, it is the 27th day of the longest government shutdown in U.S. history. Federal workers are going without pay, national parks are closing, and of course, TSA employees are calling in sick. For the drug industry, the biggest question mark tied to the shutdown relates to the Food and Drug Administration. The entire process of developing a new therapy, from starting that first clinical trial to making the case for approval, requires constant contact with the FDA. Now, thanks to the shutdown, the agency is saddled with furloughs, and it's quickly running out of money. That's creating a situation that could be disastrous for the drug industry that so dearly relies on it. Stat Washington correspondent Ike Swetlitz has been covering this story since the dawn of the shutdown, and he joins us now. Hello, Ike. Thanks for joining us here. Thanks for having me. So, Ike, what's the state of the shutdown FDA as we speak? Which functions are still working and which ones have gone dark? The status is changing um, because the FDA, like every agency, is trying to deal with a shutdown longer than they've ever experienced before. In general, the FDA is still doing work that they decide is, is basically critical to public health and safety. So if there's a request for emergency access to an experimental therapy, they're still um, inspecting a lot of uh, food and drug facilities. And since much of the agency is funded by money from the private industry, they can keep doing work uh, that comes from that funding as well. But they can't take in any new money from the industry to review new drugs. And uh, a lot of the other administrative things might not be getting done as well. So, yeah, you mentioned what I think is, is a really key, interesting point about the FDA, which is the user fee money that funds drug reviews. So how much of that money is left? You mentioned they're not accepting new applications for drug approvals, but for the ones that are already in the books, how long can the FDA go on affording to look at them? So that's a good question, and the answer to that question changes depending on who you ask and uh, when you ask it. Um, at the beginning of the month, uh, Commissioner Gottlieb said that they had about a month 
uh, of money left in the prescription drug review program. And then he said, well, actually, we were able to move some things around. We've got about four or five weeks. Um, so that puts them through the middle of February or so. Uh, for other programs, for generic drugs, medical devices, biosimilars, it looks like they've got a little more time, uh, but it's, it's, it's unclear exactly how long. Usually uh, around this time each year, uh, the FDA puts together a report with how much money the user fee programs have. Um, we don't have the report from this year yet, so we don't know the exact dollar amounts that they've got in their reserves. So President Trump has famously said that the shutdown could last months or even years. Now, Ike, you said that, you know, the FDA so far has been able to shuffle some money around to keep operations going. But how long can they actually do that? Yeah. So I think to understand this, there's there's sort of two categories of work that the FDA can do right now. So the FDA is both working on these things that are critical to public health and safety, right, and they're working on uh, review of products uh, that they're, they can use user fee money for. So those functions that are critical to public health and safety will keep going on, you know, you could sort of say forever. Uh, although I think that, you know, lawyers and, and regulators are, are in uncharted territory right here because uh, they haven't experienced a shutdown that's this long before. So if you're looking months and years down the line, no one really knows what would happen in that case. So let's talk about FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. I think it's fair to say he has been one of, if not the most warmly received Trump appointees. How has Gottlieb been handling the shutdown? Well, Gottlieb has been handling the shutdown by uh, tweeting up a storm. This is where most people who I talk to say they're getting their information from his Twitter account. Uh, he's been responding directly to questions from uh, journalists and other folks about what's going on, how much money they have left. I think watching Scott Gottlieb on Twitter has been kind of an interesting exercise because there's, of course, the whole political side of this shutdown, which he definitely doesn't want to weigh in on and, and doesn't want to be held accountable for any kind of statement about the president. But he's clearly expressed frustration and that his employees are either sent home or being asked to work without pay. Do you think he's striking that balance well? Or, or how do you think Scott is handling his like very adept social media presence in this very trying time? Well, when I've, you know, I've talked to a lot of folks over the past year or so about Commissioner Gottlieb and, uh, you know, people, people tell me that he really is someone who cares about the agency. He's been at the FDA for a long time in a number of different roles. And I think that some of that is coming through. Some of his feelings for the employees and the other folks are coming through in that the cause of the shutdown is very little, if you know, nothing really to do with the function of the FDA. So it's easy for him to stay out of the of the political fight. And finally, I, do you have a sense of where things are headed between Congress and the White House? You know, are we anywhere closer to resolving this shutdown and reopening the government? I wish I knew. Um, I think that uh, around the time when the first paychecks were missed, it seemed like there was a little more frustration uh, or at least sort of public talk about it. So I would be very curious to see what's going to happen on the next payday that doesn't happen. Ike, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Okay, Rebecca, Damien, uh, we're going to kick off this next segment with some trivia. The common theme is the year 1982. Now, neither of you were born in 1982, which actually is making me a bit lightheaded just thinking about that. But do your best to answer these questions, okay? Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right, here we go. First question is to Damien. 
Damien, what was the biggest song of 1982? 1982, I associate with the movie Flashdance, and so I'm going to guess that it's Maniac from Flashdance. Damien, that's close, but not quite right. The number one song of 1982 was Physical by Olivia Newton-John. Oh, Oh, wow. By the way, movie-related, number two, Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. All right, Rebecca, question for you, and we'll we'll make this true or false, okay? Okay. The highest-grossing film of 1982 was E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Oh, man. I think true. Yes. Very good, Rebecca. And, And then... Lastly, this is a this is a biotech podcast, so I'm going to ask you a medical trivia question, uh, and either of you can answer. In 1982, which life saving medical device was first implanted into a patient? Uh, one of those Medtronic defibrillators. Damien, very close. The answer is the first permanent artificial heart invented by Dr. Robert Jarvik that was implanted for the first time in 1982. So, Adam, there's a point to all of these old people questions, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, there is, Rebecca. Thank, thanks for pointing that out. Uh, it, you know, it turns out that 1982 was also the founding year for a small biotech company called Immunomedics. Now, in 1982, we're talking about basically the dawn of the biotech age. In 1982, I was in eighth grade. And, and at the same time, scientists at Genentech and Eli Lilly were creating the first biotech product that was a recombinant form of human insulin, which was approved in 1982. So Immunomedics is a really old biotech company. And somewhat amazingly, Immunomedics is still around today. And so, Adam, as you pointed out in a story published this week, the company is expecting to hear from the FDA within days about the approval of what would be its first drug, which is an antibody drug conjugate to treat an aggressive form of breast cancer. Immunomedics is expected to secure that FDA approval. And if that happens, the biotech will end one of the longest drug development droughts in industry history. That's 37 years. And I think what's kind of interesting about this is, one, we're constantly reminded how long timelines are in biotech. And with that in mind, 37 years maybe isn't that unreasonable. But in recent times, especially in cancer, there are all of these amazing anecdotes like Loxo Oncology and Agios, two companies that went from basically zero to an approved product in a single digit number of years. And so with that in mind, 37 years, I mean, again, it's longer than I've been on this planet. So it's, it's almost unfathomable. Yeah, that's a good point, Damien. You know, immunomedics is kind of a feel good turnaround story. You know, but at the same time, there's a lesson here about the inefficiencies of drug development and wasted resources. Uh, immunomedics burned through nearly like $1 billion across multiple failed R&D programs before it managed to get one right. So the industry needs more agioses and more loxos and fewer immunomedics if it's going to have the will to survive. That sound you just heard comes from a video game that's currently under review by the FDA. Wait, what? That's right. So if you're a kid playing this game on a tablet, you navigate through landscapes like a molten lava river and an icy winter wonderland, and you get rewarded with stars and points when you complete tasks. And that all sounds pretty standard for video games targeted at kids, but Akili Interactive Labs, which is the Boston-based company developing this one, hopes that it'll become the first FDA-approved video game prescribed to kids with ADHD. Akili sees the video game as a delivery system for targeted algorithms that would act as a medical device and activate certain neural networks in kids. 
So, Damien, that sounds a bit crazy. Does the company have data to support this? Yeah, so a little over a year ago, Achille reported results from its study of 348 preteens diagnosed with ADHD. Some of the kids were assigned to play Achilles' game on a tablet over the course of four weeks. Other kids were given a different video game designed as a placebo. The kids who played Achilles' game saw statistically significant improvements on metrics of attention and inhibitory control, and that's compared to the control group. So we should, of course, note that there are still big unanswered questions about Achilles' product. Uh, The video game has not been tested head-to-head against ADHD medications or psychotherapy to see if it's equally or more effective. And even if Achilles can get FDA approval, it's, it's still not clear whether clinicians and insurers will embrace this as a product. So as with any video game, sound is a key part of the game playing experience. So joining us to talk about what went into the sounds in the game is David Collins, audio director at Achille. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. So David, you've been involved in the Star Wars franchise since the 1990s. Um, What work have you done on that franchise and where might listeners have heard your voice before? Yeah, so I've been working on Star Wars. I see. I started, I think, in 1999, and uh, worked on dozens of video games, and even to this day, uh, still get called to do voices here and there for video games, and most notably the new films under the Disney era. I've done Stormtroopers and Aliens and uh, Rebels, Soldiers, and all kinds of things in the last four Disney films. Can we hear your best Alien voice? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm, I, maybe I'm too shy to do an alien voice, but I can tell you, for example, if you watch The Force Awakens, I walk up to Kylo Ren and I say, sir, the droid was spotted heading west with a girl. And so now you're working with Akili, of course. And I'm curious, you know, how does a voice actor from the Star Wars universe end up getting involved with a therapeutics company? Well, that's a great question. You know, I I was definitely a kid that grew up obsessed with music and theater and got involved in the entertainment industry after studying it in school. And I started working at Lucasfilm Skywalker Ranch and eventually in their video games division, LucasArts. And that's where I met co-founder of Achille, Matt Omernick. And we had a working relationship as colleagues for many years. And several years ago, he called me. And at that point, I was working at PlayStation And he said, I'm looking for someone to help me with sound for this company that I'm doing. We're making a uh, medical video game for ADHD. And I said, I know someone. I'd love to do it. And I went and quit my job as a manager at Sony PlayStation just to contract for Matt um, because we were friends and because the mission sounded so exciting to me. And uh, that's how it all started. So, David, explain to us what this game is all about. My understanding from uh, someone in entertainment that is creating this game is that the core gameplay is really all about filtering distraction. You're having the gamer multitask in a way that really, really helps develop the player. So, for example, while you're playing the game, you're steering and navigating through these different environments and at the same time being asked to make contact with all of these interesting different creatures. But you have to contact the right creatures and avoid the others. And that multitasking really pushes your brain. And and what's interesting is that if I play it versus another player, it actually adapts itself to my skill level versus another player's skill level. So no matter who is playing the game, it's uh, challenging. It definitely pushes you and stretches you. And that's also what makes it fun. So now we're going to play another audio clip from the game. Okay, so what did we just hear there? Sure, so we do have these kind of outer space type of levels where you, when you successfully tap the right creature, they have a really fun animation and you want to feel that really satisfying button push when you tap on a tablet. And you're basically giving the player feedback that they've successfully targeted the right 
creature, because in that way, kids learn how to filter distraction. So, David, your work on this game is not just limited to the sort of incidental sounds that that come up as players play it, but also the music that underscores all of this. What were your goals and ambitions in, in composing that? Well, one of the earliest conversations we had is that uh, we wanted the game to feel adventurous and fun, but also have a little bit of an edge to it. You know, overall, we had this one of the sense of adventure, almost like the Legend of Zelda from Nintendo meets Jurassic Park kind of sound. And that's kind of where the main melodies started to come out. We wanted something very melodic and memorable and hummable um, to keep people engaged with the game. But when you get to different levels say, let's say the jungle level, what we call sort of like the Jurassic jungle. We wanted to have that sense of edge and danger. So I really looked at composers like John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Alan Silvestri, a lot of that sort of classic Hollywood sound. And certainly with the Star Wars background, that was a huge influence on me. So as we mentioned earlier, the idea behind the game is to deliver these targeted algorithms and activate neural networks for therapeutic potential. But at least my understanding is that that's all visual. And by contrast, the sound in the game doesn't necessarily have a therapeutic purpose. And so my curious was, what purpose does the sound serve? How did you approach this work? I would argue anyone knows that if you if you watch a movie or something or, you know, you see those experiments where they turn the music and the sound off, the, everything just falls flat. You know, emotionally, there's no impact. The story doesn't seem to resonate. That is absolutely true in any video game and certainly with our game in Achille. And so, you know, the idea for us was, well, we want to make something just as compelling as a video game that we worked on, say, in the uh, commercial sector. We want to make something that is compelling, that kids want to keep playing. I mean, medicine is only effective if if people take it, you know, and the music is a huge driving factor of that. And the same is true with sound. Sound serves as a reward every time that you target the right creature or you navigate successfully through whatever world that you're on. Sound reinforces that. I like to say that we're the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. And that's really what we are. We're making it palatable in a way that's more than palatable. We want it to be appealing and fun. And we want people to come back and play this game as as much as they're supposed to in order for the treatment to be effective. Great. David, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Now it's time for our very favorite segment, the lightning round. So guys, uh, we all just got back from the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. We're all alive, uh, recovering. Uh, but, you know, kind of the fallout from that has been what we've talked about before about the grumbling over high prices and sort of San Francisco's problems. Um, Damien, you did a, a short survey about whether or not uh, the future of the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference will remain in San Francisco, right? I did. Yeah. So we asked people who subscribe to our email newsletter whether next year their companies plan to send fewer or, or no people to the conference. And it ended up being about 50-50 between fewer and nothing's going to change, which maybe shouldn't be surprising. And I also noticed this week that the conversation about this, this debate, kind of changed a little bit, you know, where some people were kind of arguing whether we should actually have a JPM week altogether or whether or not it should be in a different location. And I really kind of think the the relevant conversation is like the is the location of this thing that we all go to and not whether or not we should actually have it in the first place. This whole conversation kind of reminds me of a genre that became popular a few years ago. And it was personal essays written by people explaining why they're leaving New York. And I feel like the why I'm leaving New York has been replaced, at least in our industry, by why I'm leaving JP Morgan. No, that's a good analogy, Rebecca. And similarly, that 
Trendlet spawned a bunch of why New York is actually great personal essays. And this why I'm leaving JP Morgan thing has already led to a why JP Morgan is indispensable genre of essays. And anyway, I'm sure we'll all look forward to having this conversation again in 2020. So, Rebecca, you did a story this week about a new digital pill that's going to be given to cancer patients. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. So this technology comes from a Silicon Valley company called Proteus Digital Health, and it involves packaging oral chemo in the same capsule as a sensor that can alert a caregiver when a patient swallows it. And the idea is to track patients to better improve uh, their adherence to their medication and hopefully down the line, their health outcomes too. So this is one of those applications of technology that like on paper seems to make a lot of sense. But one thing that stood out to me in your story, obviously, is this is not the first time that this kind of technology has been applied to a pill. They've done this with an antipsychotic. And, you know, how did that go over? Yeah, that's right. So this antipsychotic uh, called abilifymycite was the first FDA approved digital pill approved in November of 2017. But the rollout has been very slow. In fact, a spokesperson for Otsuka, that's the manufacturer of that drug, told me that it has not yet been prescribed to any patients commercially. So no one outside of a clinical trial has gotten it yet. And that's four and a half months after they announced their rollout plans. So the reason seemed fairly mundane. It involved a delay in getting approval from a health plan um, that's supposed to be rolling it out. But I think it's important to watch you know, how adoption goes. It'll be interesting to see if patients and doctors actually want this. And lastly, there's a new biotech movie that just came out and it looks sort of bad. Uh, Here's a bit from the trailer. I'm on the verge of a breakthrough. I am this close. What if something horrible goes wrong? Something already has. I didn't defy every natural law there is just to lose you again. So that sound you hear was from a motion picture called Replicas, which stars Keanu Reeves as a scientist at a fictional Puerto Rico biotech company who, and it's hard to kind of get through this, but basically figures out how to upload the memories of dead people into, I guess, biotech-informed reanimated corpses? You know, David, actually, I think they're uploading the memories into robots, but you wouldn't know that from the trailer because there's absolutely no information about what they're trying to do scientifically. Wait a second. I thought there was cloning involved with this movie when I saw the trailer. So clearly there are some plot twists here that maybe we just should go see the movie. Well, if you consult Rotten Tomatoes, which aggregates movie reviews, it has a 9% favorability rating among reviewers. So keep that in mind as you're weighing which movie to see over the long weekend. I think maybe I'll wait for the next uh, John Wick movie. does it for another episode of the read out loud before we go a quick programming note damien is hosting a webinar on the future of clinical trials it's happening at 1 p.m eastern time on tuesday january 22nd and you can go to stats webpage to sign up thank you to alex hogan and hyacinth empanado who produced this week's episode matthew Orr is our senior producer and rick burke is our executive producer and as always we'd love to hear from you Tell us what you liked about this episode, where you fall on the Move JPM debate, and what you thought of the film Replicas. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you. See you next week.